Well, the story of the Zacks is uh, it's kind of funny, isn't it? Uh, here are these, uh, you know, the northbound Zacks and the southbound Zacks, and they happen to meet, and neither will budge to the right or to the left, and they have this uh, standoff in the book for like 59 years because neither of them will budge. Uh, not to mention it, the fact that it seems their particular species never needs to go to the bathroom or eat anything for 59 years. But uh, You know what's funny in a children's story, though? isn't always so funny in life, is it? And I'm afraid at times many of us have an I won't budge to the left or to the right kind of attitude. And we just kind of brush it off as saying, well, we're just stubborn. But I think the fundamental struggle for the Zacks and for us was pride. Our highly inflated view of ourselves. Our highly inflated image of who we are, our highly inflated superiority, we think, to others. It is pride that often causes us to have an attitude that says, I won't budge to the right or to the left. Do you know what the difference is between a a cat and a dog? Well, a dog, one of the differences uh, one of the differences is that a dog, when you know a dog comes to you and you pet that dog and tell that dog you're such a good girl and pet him and love him a little bit, you know what the dog thinks? The dog looks at you and thinks, you, you must be God. But when a cat comes to you, if they ever do come to you, um, you know, and you pet that cat and you tell that cat you're such a good little thing, you know what the cat thinks? The cat thinks, I must be God. And I'm afraid at times some of us view life through the eyes of a cat. I must be God. Everybody else needs to get out of my way. Everybody else needs to listen to what I say. Everybody else needs to bow to my desires. And it is pride that causes us to think that way. It is pride that is often very dangerous. The Bible, in fact, gives us this warning about our pride. James 4, 6 says, God opposes the proud, but He favors the humble. God opposes, I won't budge to the left or to the right kind of attitudes. God opposes, I'm God kind of thinking. And this uh, pride that sometimes seeps into our lives is very dangerous. And today I want to talk about some of the dangers of this pride, which really so often is what leads us to so many other sin struggles in our lives. And so I want to look at a story in the Bible in Daniel chapter 4. And so I hope you brought your Bible today. It's a little book over in the Old Testament part of your Bible. It comes after the big book of Ezekiel. And then there's a bunch of little books after it like Hosea, Joel, and Amos. And I want to encourage you to turn to Daniel. We're going to look at all of chapter 4. And I want you to see this story. I think there's some things in here that you'll want to mark. And I hope there's some things in here you'll go back and think about over the course of the next week. Let me kind of set up the story for you, okay? The story is about King Nebuchadnezzar. And King Nebuchadnezzar was a very, very successful ruler over the country of Babylon, which would today be modern-day Iraq. And uh, he was very powerful. He was very creative, very clever. He had risen to have great strength, great power. He took very good care of the people in his kingdom. And uh, as we'll see in the story, he begins to think very highly of himself and what he has accomplished. And uh, this uh, book of Daniel and King Nebuchadnezzar ruling over Babylon is the same place where we find the story of Daniel. And you think about him 
uh, being the guy that was thrown in the den of lions, and that happens in this book. And uh, maybe you've heard the story about uh, Meshach and Abednego and being thrown into the fiery furnace, and that happens in this book. But I want to zero in on another moment in as King Nebuchadnezzar is ruling. And I want to start by reading the first three verses of chapter 4. And uh, as we read these three first three verses, though, you need to understand this. The first three verses are sort of the, the summation of the story. It, it's kind of like if you watch a television show, and they, at the very beginning of the show, they show you what happens at the end. And then the rest of the show is they go back in time and tell you how, kind of show you how it got to that point. Well, that's kind of the same way that what happens in Daniel chapter 4. In the very first three verses, we get kind of the summation of the story. Here's, the, here's what Daniel thinks at the end of the story. And then we read the rest of the chapter and we see how it is that he got to the point in his life that he says the things that are in the first three verses. So let's dive into this. Daniel chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar, to the peoples, nations, and men of every language who live in all the world, may you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are His signs, how mighty His wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. Now, believe me, there was a point in Nebuchadnezzar's life that he would not have said these kinds of things about the Most High God. But there are some things that happened in chapter 4 that changed his life that finally it gets to the point where he realizes how he ought to think about the Most High God. He has this incredible dream. I mean, when you begin to see what he dreams in this dream, it's one of those things that make you realize, I really ought to read the Bible because there's some incredible things in here. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that science fiction would love to tell these kinds of stories. Because Nebuchadnezzar has this dream. And in his dream, he sees this massive tree that in his dream, it reaches to the skies and it is full of leaves and fruit and it provides protection for animals and people and it is incredibly impressive. And this tree, though, there is this being that appears. It seems in his dream, the being appears from heaven. And this being cuts down the tree. He leaves the the, the stump and the roots, but he cuts down the tree. And then there is this message that is given. And in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, he's not sure if the message is given to him or whoever, but the, the messenger says something to the effect of, you'll be covered in the dew of heaven and you'll become like an animal. You'll eat like an animal. You'll crawl like an animal for seven years or seven passages of time. And Nebuchadnezzar doesn't understand the dream. Maybe he's afraid to understand the dream. And so he, he brings in the wise men of his kingdom who haven't done so well in the past at trying to interpret dreams, but I guess he decides he'll give them another try. And he says, here's my dream. What does it mean? And they don't have any idea. And so he calls for Daniel, who is also named Belshazzar. And he asks Daniel to interpret his dream. And Daniel is hesitant at first. Hesitant to begin with because he's not sure he understands it until he takes some time to listen to God. And if God helps him to understand it, then he's not so sure he wants to tell Nebuchadnezzar the meaning of this dream because it's not good news for Nebuchadnezzar. But listen to what Daniel begins to describe in verse 19. And actually, let me, uh, before we go any farther, I'm going to fix my mic so it doesn't keep falling off my ear, okay?
Okay, we'll all be happier now. At least I will be. Here's what it says, beginning in the second part of verse 19. Belshazzar answered, My Lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. In other words, I really wish this dream wasn't about you, and that's why I'm a bit hesitant to tell you what it actually means. Verse 20. The tree you saw, which grew large and strong, with its top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth, with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing food for all, giving shelter to the beast of the field, and having nesting places in its branches for the birds of the air. You, O king, are that tree. You have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky, and your dominion extends to the distant parts of the earth. Now, Nebuchadnezzar liked this part of the dream. He's thinking, absolutely, that is me. I am great. I have grown to be mighty and strong. But that's not the end of the story. It's not the end of the dream. Because then there is this part about the messenger that Daniel alludes to. And he begins to explain in verse 24 what the messenger is really saying. This is the interpretation, O king. And this is the decree the Most High has issued against my Lord the King. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone He wishes. And seven passages of time probably means seven years. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, O King, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. Daniel says, I'm warning you, this is the meaning of the dream, but if you'll repent right now, if you'll repent of your attitude that says, look at me, look at my greatness, look at what I've accomplished, maybe God will spare you. Verse 28, all this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, now remember, it's been a whole year. God hasn't acted on this dream. And Nebuchadnezzar has had a whole year to change his attitude. Listen to what happens then. Nebuchadnezzar says, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence? by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty. These words were still on his lips when a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken away from you. You will be driven away from people and you will live like the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone He wishes. Time is going to pass, Nebuchadnezzar, until you finally get to the place where you will acknowledge once and for all in your life that you didn't do this by yourself, that you're not a great king by yourself, that I, God, have given you the kingdom that you rule over, and I, God, rule over the universe. And so this all happens to Nebuchadnezzar. He becomes like an animal. He eats the grass like cattle do. He, he grows feathers and claws. I mean, 
Who can make this stuff up? It's incredible, isn't it? And time passes, and he has a change of heart. Verse 34. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my sanity was restored. But do you see the order of events there? His sanity was restored only when he finally got to the place that he raised his eyes towards heaven and he acknowledged the sovereignty of God. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified Him who lives forever. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does, God does, as He pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? Nebuchadnezzar finally gets to the place in his life and in his heart that he acknowledges that God rules over all people. And then verse 37 kind of summarizes the story for us. And it's in verse 37 that we, we get the lesson for us. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of Heaven because everything He does is right and all His ways are just. And then underline this next part. And those who walk in pride, He is able to humble. And those who walk in pride, He is able to humble. Now, here's the moral of the story. You can climb too high for your own good. See, Nebuchadnezzar, that's exactly what happened to him. He was incredibly successful, incredibly powerful, so much to the point. He climbed so high that he began to think that he was above everyone, including God. And that doesn't just happen to kings. I guess it happens to Zaxby's. I know it happens to people. We can climb too high for our own good. And we begin to think that we are higher and better than anyone, including God. And that's our pride that lifts us there. I, uh, one of my things about uh, growing up as a kid was playing with Play-Doh. You could play with Play-Doh? In fact, uh, I remember playing with Play-Doh with the boys. We don't do that anymore. They've outgrown it. I'm not sure I have. Uh, I can't wait to have grandchildren, you know, and get the Play-Doh out. Now, I'm not creative. I'm not artsy. But, uh, you know, you can create a few things out of Play-Doh. You know, you can, uh, we used to make stick figures, you know, or, uh, oh, here's a good one. We can make snowmen. Do some of you know what those are? Yeah. Now, I'm not creative at all, but I can make things. But can you imagine, as, as I'm creating with this Play-Doh and making what I want to create, whether it's artsy or not, whether you can tell what it is or not, can you imagine as I'm forming this Play-Doh and making things, that suddenly the Play-Doh decided to talk back to me and say, hey, that's not the way you do it. Really? You're going to form me like that? Come on. That's not, you know, you can't make, play, make things out of Play-Doh like that. That doesn't even look like anything. I mean, that's ludicrous, isn't it? To think that the Plato would talk back to the Creator. Do you understand that in the book of Romans, we are described as the clay, and God is described as the 
potter. That God is the creator and we are the clay in His hands. And in the book of Isaiah, God says that that my, my ways, they're higher than your ways. And God says my thoughts, they're, they're higher than your thoughts. In fact, He says, as, as far as the heavens are above the earth, that's how much higher my ways are than your ways. And that's how much higher my thoughts are than your thoughts. And so when we say things, when we argue with God, or we say, well, I can't believe in a God that would... That would what? That would think or act differently than you do? I mean, isn't it possible that the Creator of the universe is simply a little bit smarter and a little bit wiser than we are? Isn't it possible that His love, His mercy, His justice is absolutely perfect and we might be the ones that are flawed? And so when I say or think things like, well, you know, I just don't think God would do that. You know what we're doing? We're suggesting our pride is suggesting that we can we as the created ones can question the one who created us our pride is causing us to take the higher ways of god and to submit them to our thinking our pride causes us to to take the thoughts of god and to submit them to our way of living and that is pride at its highest and at its most dangerous. Who are we as the clay to say to the potter, God, I'm not sure you know what you're doing. Why would you do that? You know what we're really saying? We're saying, I, I can't believe God would do or think that because that's not the what I think or do. Really? Really? In my own quiet time, I've been uh, reading um, through the book of Job for a couple of weeks now. And if you know the story of Job, it, Job is this guy that God calls very righteous. I mean, he, he was a guy who was really seeking after God and trying to do the right things in his life. And even God says, this is a righteous follower of mine. And Satan comes along and says, but I, I bet God, if I took away some of these things in his life, he wouldn't be so righteous then. And so God grants Satan permission. And, and Satan causes Job's children to be killed and his possessions to be lost and Job has these horrible physical ailments. And you read this book and Job suffers in chapter after chapter after chapter. And honestly, I read that book and there is a part of me that says, God, I, I don't get it. Why would you do that? God, that's not what I would do. That's not the way I think I mean, I would look at this guy, Job, who's so righteous, and I would say, you want to reward him. Why would you allow this stuff to happen in his life? God, I don't understand that. Why? That's not how I think. You know what? And then I get to the cross, the story of Jesus. And I think, really, God? 
I mean, these people, including me, are so wicked, so sinful. And your response to that, God, was to send your Son, your only Son, your perfect, sinless Son. God, that's your response to send Him to die on the cross to pay for the crimes of all of us? God, that's not what I would have done. That's not how I think, God. I, I don't understand. Really, God, why? And we're forced to realize that His ways and His thoughts are so much higher than our ways. You see, we have to get to the point where we realize that God does know what He's doing. But my pride says often, I know better than God. I'm smarter than Him. Why would He do that? He doesn't know what He's doing. And that, that pride, that pride is so dangerous. David Rhodes wrote about pride. He said, pride is the dandelion of the soul. Its roots go deep. Only a little needs to be left behind and it can sprout again. Its seeds lodge in the tiniest encouraging cracks. Here's what God says about pride. God says, I hate pride and arrogance. Why does He hate it? I think at least part of the reason is because pride causes us to put ourselves on the throne of our lives instead of putting God on that throne. And so God says, I, I hate pride and arrogance because I hate what it can do in your life. That pride in your life causes you to climb to a place that's higher than is really good for you. And causes you to think that you know better than I do. And so how do we, how do we guard against pride in our lives? Because let me tell you, it is far better for us to descend the hill, the mountain of pride ourselves than to fall from it. The writer of Proverbs, again, says this, first pride, then the crash. <laughs> I think Nebuchadnezzar learned the meaning of that verse, didn't he? The bigger the ego, the harder the fall. So how do we manage our pride? Because we don't want Daniel 4.37 to become true in our lives. And those who walk in pride, He, God, is able to humble them. So let me suggest a couple of things. And these aren't rocket science. They're not brand new. They're kind of tough and challenging to live out at times. Here's the first one. You've got to put others before yourself. You've got to put others before yourself. Because I think putting others before yourself has a way of helping us to see our value, our importance in the right perspective. So put others before yourself. Esther Kim and Kay Poe were uh, training for the 2000 Olympics in Taekwondo. It had been their dream for years. Years earlier, they had met and begun to train together. And in the midst of their training together, they had also become incredibly deep friends, sharing life together, sharing laughter, talking about boyfriends, all those kinds of things. As they worked every day towards this goal that we want to qualify for the 2000 Olympics. Well, the... Trials, the Olympic trials came along. 
And much to their surprise, the divisions had been changed around for the upcoming Olympics and they found themselves as competitors potentially against each other. And so suddenly they were faced with the realization that only one of them would win and go on to the Olympics. The other would lose and be left behind. Well, as the tournament began, they both were winning their matches and their kept progressing through the brackets to the point it was obvious they were going to meet up in the championship. But in the match before they would meet, Kay Poe was injured. She hurt her leg, hurt it to the point where she physically could barely walk, let alone fight. And it became obvious that if Esther Kim wanted to, she could easily defeat Kay Poe on this day and it would be her moment to realize her dream, the dream that for her had started when she was just eight years old and she had begun to work at Taekwondo. She could easily have her goal. But on that day when they stepped into the ring or the mat or whatever you call it, Esther Kim did what for many of us would be the unthinkable mean. She bowed to her partner as a sign that she was forfeiting because she realized that first of all, more than anything, she valued her friend. But she also realized that Kay Poe was by far the better athlete and had the better chance of winning. And so for the good of Kay Poe and for the good of our nation in a sense, she bowed and forfeited so that the best athlete could advance. A writer for Sports Illustrated interviewed her in days that followed. And Esther Kim said after that moment, she said, at the moment that I bowed and forfeited to her, I felt more like a champion than I have ever felt. you got to put others before yourself. Let me ask you some questions. What's more important to you? That the job gets done or that your steam rises? And when it comes to putting others before yourself, do you just see the need of somebody else or do you actually roll up your sleeve and do something to help meet their needs? Because until you're willing to roll up your sleeves and serve others, it's possible that pride stands in your way. When it comes to, to serving around here at Crosspoint, are you willing to, to roll up your sleeves and to serve? Or let me ask you this. Or, or are you more concerned about what serving others around here will cost you? What you might have to give up? Are you more concerned about what serving others will cost you as opposed to what your service could mean to someone else? If that's true, then it's possible that pride might be in your life a little bit. Or here's another thing to think about. When you see somebody even around here at Crosspoint that is hurting and struggling, do you reach out to do something? Do you see somebody here on the Sunday even and, and you, that's hurting? Do you go and do you pray for them? Do you follow up during the week with a phone call? Do you do something in their life to help ease the pain? If you're not willing to roll up your sleeves and to serve others who are hurting, then maybe you have gone too high for your own good. Because here's what I believe is true for Nebuchadnezzar. I believe that the first step in Nebuchadnezzar's life to putting himself above God was that he put himself above other people. And I think the first step for us in sometimes elevating ourselves above God 
is that we begin to think we're elevated above other people. Here's the second thing. Again, it's not rocket science. Accept your part in His plan. Accept your part in His plan. God does have a plan for your life. There is a way that God wants to use you. But here's the thing. It may not be glamorous. It may not be an easy road, and it probably will cost you something. You know what? Humility. Humility is not having this kind of false sense of saying, well, I can't do anything. No, humility is saying, I can't do everything, but I can do something. And I will do that something, whatever it is God asks me to do, even even if it's not glamorous, even if there's not a lot of applause to it, even if there's not a lot of attention, even if it costs me something that is invaluable to me, if it's part of God's plan, I'll do it. Let me illustrate that in just one of many ways we could talk about people around here. The, the people that are, are on stage here this morning playing in the band and leading in worship, do you know what they did before they were up here leading in worship this morning? They showed up at 7 o'clock this morning, every one of them, to help set up. And they'll stay after the second worship experience. And they'll be here till 1 o'clock this afternoon, tearing everything down and loading it back on a truck. Now, I believe all of them would do that whether we made it an expectation or not. But do you know why we make that an expectation around here for these guys? Because if they're not willing to roll up their sleeves and serve, then they're not somebody who ought to be leading other people in worship. Because pride tends to get in the way. And that's just one example. There are so many things, if we're not careful. The Bible says this in Romans 12.3. Don't cherish exaggerated ideas of yourself or your importance, but try to have a sane estimate of your capabilities by the light of the faith that God has given you. God has a part for you. It just may not be glamorous. And it may mean rolling up your sleeves and serving others. Don't climb too high for your own good. Remember, you're the clay. You're the Play-Doh. He's the creator. He's the potter. Don't begin to think that somehow in your life you are elevated above Him. Don't let your pride Elevate you above the one who created us. Let's pray together. Well, God, that's challenging stuff for us. Because I'll admit this morning that I struggle with pride in my life. I like the attention sometimes, God. And God, sometimes I'm deceived into thinking that I know better than you do. God, would you help every one of us in this room to trust you, to understand our place, to realize the significance of your love for us, but God, to be reminded that you are the creator and we're simply the clay in your hand. And who are we to say, well, God, how could you do that? God, help us to come down the mountain of pride before you have to bring us down the mountain. Father, would you plant the story of Nebuchadnezzar deeply in our hearts? 
so that we don't have to experience what he's experienced. God, we worship you. Our God. Our majesty. Our creator. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.